In the 2006 telly movie, Candles on the Bay, with Alicia Silverstone, has anyone seen it? Don't expect you would have. A young mother tells her little son that she is dying of cancer. Devastated by such news, the son says to her through sobbing tears, but we can keep on hoping, can't we? The mother answers her, yes, we can keep on hoping. In the movie, just days later, she dies. Hope is nice. Something we might offer those who are too young to face reality will offer a young child hope in the prospect of their mother's death. Because so often hope is just helpless in the face of reality. Hope is little more than, for us these days, an expression of a desired future ideal. Hope is what we offer others and even ourselves when reality is too hard these days. And yet we do hope. As humans, we engage in hope and the project of an optimistic, thinking of an optimistic future all the time, against the odds, against the best evidence to the contrary, we want to be hopeful about the future because we as humans are hopeful beings. In fact, we must hope, writes Jerome Gripman, who's professor at Harvard Medical School, And he writes his book, The Anatomy of Hope, How People Prevail in the Face of Illness. And he writes that for his patients, hope has proved more important than any medication he might prescribe or procedure that he might perform. He writes, hope, I have come to believe, is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen we breathe. So hope is nice, but it's more than just nice this doctor thinks of it as an essential part of what it is to be human or, in fact, to get through the realities of being human. It's not just doctors who would tell you that hope is necessary. It's also economists. Our whole economy is based on hope. Our willingness to invest relies on the assumption of an optimistic future. Hope is nice and hope is necessary. If you ask doctors, it's necessary economically. It's necessary psychologically And yet, hope is so uncertain. No one's going to bungee jump, hoping that the rope will catch them. No, if we were to bungee jump with a rope, we wouldn't want a hopeful prospect. We want a certain prospect of a rope that would hold us. We want confidence and certainty. And if it's confidence and certainty, it's not hope. Or so we are led to believe. I was introduced to John Ruskin at university by one of my lecturers. John Ruskin was probably the most eminent uh, art, English art critics of the 19th century. And he observes in his book, The Stones of Venice, a change in the way that people understood hope. That's a facade in a building in Venice called the Jacal Palace. And you see the note in that detail where the arrow, and it's quite hard to see, but this is what he notices. That's a column from the 14th century. And there, that woman there is hope, just next to the arrow, is hope personified. And there she is praying, praying, while above her 
is the hand of God. And the hand of God, Ruskin says, is emerging from the sunbeams. But this design is rudely uh, and imperfectly developed in the next century, in the 15th century. It's imitated, but it's changed slightly. If you go to the next slide, you can see it's similar. This is about 100 or so years after that first column. And here is uh, Hope praying, or the personification in this woman of Hope praying. But she's praying to the sun only. The hand of God is gone. And this is Ruskin's point as an art critic and just a real expert because that's not obvious to me. I don't think it would be obvious to many of us here. But take it from him. Here's his point. When the hand of God is gone, hope changes. He says, hope without God cannot reach beyond the sun. Without God, hope changed in this period, what we know as the Renaissance period. And that change in hope has actually affected the way that we think about hope today. Hope for so many of us in our world is just a wish, a wish, a desire, a fanciful desire for the future. Last week in verse 1, as we started this series in the book of 1 Peter, we saw that Peter wants to let these, know, let these Christians know that he's writing to, in the area of what we would know as modern-day Turkey, that they have a new status. They're feeling this new status. In fact, it's a new social status because they are down the bottom of the pile. And worse than that, they are marginalised. And worse than that, they have been persecuted and pressured. But it's not only this new social status that Peter wants to remind these Christians of. He wants to remind them of something far more important. He wants to remind them of their spiritual status, one that has been given to them by God. They've been gifted a new reality, a new home, that which was once strange to them, heaven. Peter says, has become familiar. And that which was once familiar to them, the world in which they lived, has become strange. He called them last week exiles. And at the very end of the book of 1 Peter, if you open up to the book of 1 Peter, you'll see in chapter 5 that Peter says that he's writing from Babylon. But you know what? He's not writing from actually Babylon. He's writing from Rome. Because for in Peter's mind, it's just like the Old Testament, that now that these Christians, they might be in Rome and they might be scattered throughout Asia Minor. But wherever they are, they're not home. Because heaven is a home. That's where we saw last week. And so my aim is simple as we slide on through the next couple of verses, as we study these words, and if you want to open up, it'd be really helpful both to you and me. It's a short little section, but it's a very rich section, verses 3 to 5. My aim is that as we study these words, quite simply, that you would have much cause to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what Peter is inviting his readers to do. Have a look there in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, praise, praise be to the Godfather of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not simply a statement, but it's an invitation. And it's an invitation that is not particularly new. Because throughout the ages, God's people have been invited to praise God, to praise, bless, and to give thanks for him. In Psalm 118, verse 1, the psalmist encourages 
those who would hear him to praise the Lord. He says it in this way. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Giving thanks, giving praise, very similar concepts and words. But for what? What is Peter inviting these readers to praise God for? Well, for the expected, assumed, run-of-the-mill mercy we see there. No. He's inviting them to praise God, to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. My friend Dave, a couple of years ago, started doing martial arts with his kids. And uh, he went to this dojo, this you know, school, and he had a particularly intense instructor. And uh, after a couple of months, I think he was on green belt, you know, the first kind of belt. And uh, after the class, the instructor comes up to him with Anthony and Anthony Robbins' kind of intensity, and he says to him, Dave, what is your big martial arts dream? Dave thinks to himself, you know, like I've gone the green belt. Maybe the next thing could be the next belt. I think it's a yellow belt or something like that. He goes, well, you know, maybe get to yellow belt. The guy looks back at him and he says, Dave, I said, what was your big martial arts dream? Peter wants his readers to understand God's mercy, but it's not just God's mercy. It's his great mercy. And great isn't even sufficient to understand the enormity of the mercy that Peter is talking about. In fact, that's why this whole section from verses 3 to verse 21 exists because it's an explanation of how great God's mercy is. We're just going to pick verses 3 to 5, but it's an extended section in Peter's thought. And it'll unpack this idea all the way through up until verse 21 because for these Christians scattered throughout the ancient world who are facing the prospect of what men can do to them, Peter wants to show these Christians what God has done for them. It's not so much what man can do to them, but in Peter's mind, what they need to know about is what God has done for them. It starts in Peter's mind with what God is doing and it ends in Peter's mind with what God is doing. It starts with the resurrection there in verse 3. Have a look. And where does it end? Verse 21. It ends with Jesus' resurrection and ours. It starts with hope, verse 3. And where does it end? It ends, verse 21, with a call to hope in God. It starts with God and it ends with God in, Paul, in Peter's mind. See, the Jews of the first century were always, call, were always called to praise God. You know, they had ten kind of sayings of praise to God that they would just uh, offer up, that they would just throw out. But here Peter is not asking these Christians to praise God simply for creation. For that would be enough for God to be praised. But it's not, it's not a creation, but a new creation. It's not simply mercy, but it is great mercy. It is big mercy that Peter is calling these Christians to praise God. In his great mercy, he has given us what? He's given us new birth or caused us to be reborn. Uh, I was witness to the birth of all four of our children and pretty well nearly fainted <clears throat> every time uh, because birth is this very dramatic thing. It's, it's beautiful, but it's very dramatic, especially if you haven't been around that kind of thing 
before, at every birth, as we know, we've just had a little one born, little Sophie, beautiful little girl there. Every single birth, doesn't matter who, every single birth is special, isn't it? Uh, my father-in-law is an obstetrician, and uh, he's been an obstetrician for close to 40 years, uh, and he doesn't get excited about many things, but after th- delivering literally thousands of babies, even last night over dinner, he's still excited about the reality of babies coming into the world. He loves it. It's got a wonder about it for him. And so Peter wants to capture the wonder, the wonder of birth, but it's not just birth he's talking about. He wants to capture and he wants these Christians to be captured with the reality of new birth that they have been brought into. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. And this new birth is dramatic and it's beautiful and it's a gift that brings us into a new reality. Firstly, it's dramatic if you've got an outline there. What is it to be a Christian? What is it? Is it to have a particular biblical worldview, a Christian moral outlook? Is it to be involved in a culture or an environment that you, brought, that you were brought up in? Just something your family did or you're taken to, something that you might even quite like yourself. Is it to have the kind of Christian habits of what Christians do? Go to church, be kind, read your Bible. No. To be a Christian and to become a Christian is to enter an utterly new world, a new spiritual reality. And this spiritual reality is not simply a spiritual upgrade. You know, if you uh, smile nicely at the concierge, um, uh, you might get a bit of an upgrade into a nicer room. Uh, perhaps if you're not asked the hostess or something like that on a plane, you might get out of economy class into business class. It's not slightly better becoming a Christian. It's a reality of new birth. It's a dramatic reality. It's a dramatic spiritual reality that has occurred within our lives our lives. We've gone from spiritual deadness, numbness to God, alien to him and his enemies, and God in his spirit has raised us to new life, to have a consciousness of him, to have a love of him, to have a trust of him. It is not an upgrade, it is an utterly new transformation. And this is Jesus' point to Nicodemus, because I think Nicodemus thinks of Jesus as, well, his, uh, his ticket to a spiritual upgrade. I mean, he's very good. He's done all the religious kind of things. And in fact, as far as we can tell, probably very moral as a person. But Jesus says to him, it's, it's not like, Nicodemus, you need an extra amount of truth. It's not like you're just missing a particular principle or that you need to add anything. No, Nicodemus, Jesus says, you need to be born again. You need to be reconceived. You have to be regenerated. You have to be made new. You need a complete rebuild on a new frame. Becoming Christian is dramatic because it's about being reborn. It's not just dramatic, it's beautiful as well, secondly. Because it's the start of new life. I mean, that's why the birth of a little baby is such a wonderful thing. There's so much potential in that little bundle just there. So much potential. 
I think this, I've got this quote right, or no, I'm pretty sure I haven't got this quote right, but it goes something like this. The sound of our funeral is heard, <coughs> is heard at our birth. What do babies do when they cry if they're born in a healthy manner? Sorry, what do babies do when they're born? They cry. Why? Why babies cry? Because they demonstrate the nature of the world that they are to be brought up in. Because we know that every cry of a newborn, it won't be the first tears in their life that will be shed. But the new birth, the rebirth that Peter is talking about isn't simply a birth to life. It's far greater than that. It's a birth to everlasting life. It's new birth that leads to life now and life for eternity. This is the experience of the Christian now. It's not some cycle of life, death, uh, sorry, birth, death, birth, death, like the Lion King, the circle of life. No, it's a beautiful reality because it's a new birth. It's a living birth into a reality for which death cannot touch. And it's not only dramatic or beautiful, but it's also a gift. Um, I'm thankful that none of my kids decided it was uh, the right time for them to be born. No, it was, they were born by the doctor's decision and the medical staff's intervention. And there they are, they come out, you know, with that startle reflex like this. And... Um, you know, kids are really interested in what they were like when they were born. I, used to, I was asking my dad when I was a kid, and he always used to say, oh, Stuart, you look like a little red rabbit. And I never kind of really understood what he meant until I, you know, I saw the birth of my own kids. And there they are. They're just so helpless, startle reflex, so passive, aren't they, in this process? Because there is their, as they're brought into this world, they're brought into the, in the world at the hands of uh, others. And these... People who bring them into the world, midwives, doctors, nurses, care for them. And they love these little ones even before these little ones know that they are loved. And so new birth is a gift. It's dramatic, it's beautiful, but it's also a gift. It's because of God's great what? It's because of God's great mercy, Peter is speaking here, not because of our great merit, his mercy. We are passive in our new birth. And fourthly, <clears throat> it brings us into a new reality, a new family, a new life, and a new future. This new birth is now the most significant point of reference for our life. This is now our compass. This is now our centering reality. And this new birth op opens us up into a new world. That's the fourth point there, hope, because the doors of the delivery world, world of new birth open up a new world of, of hope, we're going to see. Also, you'll see in your outline, inheritance. And thirdly, salvation. Firstly, of hope. The Christian life is characterised by what? what? What might be three words that characterise the Christian life? Love? Service? Hope? Yeah. Yeah, faith, hope, and love is generally um, the three. It's not four. We could have four. That might be a good fourth. If there was four, we'd have that as four. Uh, but according to the Apostle Paul, not according to me, 
is faith, hope, and love. And um, I know you've heard plenty of sermons on faith, whether you've listened to them or not. That's another thing, but I know you've heard plenty of sermons on faith. Uh, I'm guessing you know that love is pretty important in the Christian life, but we don't hear much about hope, do we? But here is what the Apostle Peter wants these Christians to understand. He wants them to understand the nature of not just hope, but a Christian hope of, indeed, living hope. Because hope in our world is tentative. It's wishful thinking. And I'm worried that too often we think of Christian hope in the same way. I hope to remember to pick up the milk on the way home. Now, what kind of guarantee might Mandy receive that when I come home she'll be greeted with two litres of milk in her hand? Well, it's contingent, isn't it? Mandy's hope is contingent at that moment. It's contingent on my ability to remember. It's failed once or twice. It's contingent on the time I might have, and it's even contingent on whether there is sufficient milk at IGA. So Mandy's hope that I might bring home milk is, well, it's, it's, it's tentative. So how does the Apostle Peter think of Christian hope? Well, have a look there in verse 3. We've been brought into this new reality, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here you see the nature of Christian hope. It is sure and it is certain. Christianity generates hope. It always has throughout history. For the last 2,000 years, whenever Christianity has been present, hope has been realised. People have lived with hope. People have lived with a fundamental optimism about their ultimate future. Because when Christianity first exploded onto the ancient world in the first century scene, the first century was not a world filled by hope. Here's how one writer, David Bentley Hart, describes the world before the Christian gospel made its mark. It's up on uh, the uh, screen. This is, this is the reality of a world before Christianity. Bentley Hart says it was a non-Christian society that had become ever more otherworldly and joyless, ever wearier of the burden of itself and ever more resentful of the soul's incarceration in the closed system of a universe governed by fate, basically, that uh, you know, people felt like they were in jail, is what he's saying. It was the non-Christian society that seemed unable to conceive of any spiritual aspiration higher than escape. That was the world before the Christian gospel came in. It was not as though that Christianity came in and stole people's dreams. They didn't have these kinds of dreams. They didn't have an optimism about the future. The best they could hope for was to escape from the body. But when the gospel came in, it utterly transformed the way in which the ancient world thought and those Christians thought about their lives now, about their future and about their past. Christianity brought life, wholeness and meaning. The Apostle Paul describes a world without Christ as a world without hope in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And so what would be the basis of such culture-shaping, 
world-changing hope? Is it a wishful, religious, spiritual idea? No. Hope has solid ground for the Christian. It's got solid ground for the future because of the solid ground of the past. It's a living hope. That's what Peter says. It's a living hope. Why is it a living hope? Well, he tells you in the next section because the foundation for Christian hope is not just an idea. It's not that just we really want to have this thing because we're Christian. No. The foundation of Christian hope is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead based on the undisputed fact of an empty tomb, based on the eyewitness testimonies of hundreds of people to the Lord Jesus, based on, the witness, based on those witnesses willing to die for what they saw and believed. It's based on the reality, the historic fact that there was once a man who was dead, they put him in a hole, and three days later... He rose to life. But it's not simply that. It's a fact. But as the early Christians defended the reality of the resurrection, it wasn't only the facts that they pointed to. They pointed to them, the empty tomb, the witnesses. It wasn't simply the facts. In this book, The Case for Jesus, Brant Petrie makes this point. And he says that these early Christians pointed... To the reality of, sorry, as they sought to defend the reality of the resurrection, pointed to the facts, but they also pointed to the massive impact that that the Christian gospel and the resurrection made. How do you explain, other than something massive occurring, how do you explain the change that Christianity brought? He writes this, he says, they sim, they, uh, They simply pointed the pagan world around them that was crumbling to the ground as Gentile nations that had worshipped idols and gods and goddesses for millennia somehow inexorably repented, turned and began and worshipped the God of the Jews. What is, what was one of the major defences of the early church for the reality of the resurrection? He says, Petra says, it's the way it changed People, those who worship gods and goddesses, turn to worship the living Lord Jesus. You see, Christian hope is only hope because the reality of what we will one day experience in full is at this moment unseen. That is the nature of Christian hope. It's not simply a desire. The reality of hope is that it's masked. It's not seen. And so Christian hope is not tenuous or contingent. It's solid. It's solid. It's based on the reality of the resurrection, the past, which guarantees a reality in our future. And this is a spiritual reality. But this doesn't mean it's not real. Imagine if um, a a girl was really good at cross-country and um, she wanted her um, dad to come and watch her run in the cross-country carnival, but the dad couldn't make it for whatever reason. So the dad says, well, don't worry, sweetheart. I'll be with you in spirit. Well, what does that mean? Like, obviously the dad's not going to be with her in any sense. 
we know what the dad's saying. Dad, I, would, I would really want to be there, and if I was there, I'm cheering you, and I might not be there, but I'll be cheering you from wherever I am. You see, if, if, it's, a, you know, if it's a spiritual reality, is it a real thing? Well, this is what Peter wants these Christians to understand, that this is a tangible reality. Many of us deal in tangible terms. Okay? We exist in a tangible, physical world. And this is the reality that Peter wants to connect his readers with. Have a look there in verse 4. Because this real hope is a hope of an inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. New birth leads to this inheritance. The old, in the Old Testament, the land of Canaan was seen as Israel's inheritance. In Numbers 34, verse 2, Moses says, as he points to Canaan, this will be your inheritance. And so the nature for the Christian of our inheritance is that it is future. It is eternal. It is spiritual. But you know what? It's real. It's like, well, in Jesus' mind, it's like a treasure. In this beautiful little parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 11, where this man digs up this chest, and so he finds this chest in someone else's field, so he sells all his things to buy that field because his treasure is tangible to him. It's real to him. And the reality of our inheritance, it's future, it's spiritual, but it is real. One of the best Thinkers who's helped Christians understand the reality of what's in front of us is a man called Jonathan Edwards, someone um, I, I quote from fairly regularly. This uh, 18th century preacher, Christian thinker, philosopher, polymath, and he's very good at helping us kind of see the reality of our inheritance before him. He says this, He says this, he says, I mean that God, three in one, all that he is and all that he has and all that he does and all that he's made, the whole universe, bodies and spirits, earth and heaven, angels, men and devils, sun, moon and stars, land and sea, fish and fowls, all silver and gold, kings and common men are as much the Christians now as the money in his pocket, the clothes he wears the house he dwells in, or the food he eats. In fact, more properly and more advantageously his than if he could command all those things just mentioned because of his union, his joining with Christ, because Christ certainly possesses all things. Every atom, Edward says, is managed by Christ so as to be the most to the advantage of the Christian. Every particle of air, every ray of sun, so that we... In the other world, when we come to see it, shall sit and enjoy all this vast inheritance with surprising joy and amazement. This is the reality that's before us, friends. I think for many of us here tonight, it's not the certainty of our future that troubles us. Many of us are quite sure We've banked on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. But you know what I think one of the major roadblocks to us as a church is? I think it's the reality of heaven, that it is real. 
If it's real, it's also assured. Peter goes on to say that it can't perish, spoil or fade. It can't perish, which means that death can't destroy it. It can't spoil because sin can't harm it and it can't fade because time won't affect it. Near my parents is this beautiful waterfront block and an old lady lived on this large block in this old house by the water for many years and she couldn't mow her own lawn so the lawnmower man came and mowed her own lawns and he was a nice guy, sometimes he had a cup of tea with her and there she got to the end of her life, no doubt she had two children I'm told. Her children probably expected to receive this over $2 million piece of waterfront property. But they didn't. Guess who got the property? The lawnmower man. She gave it, this true story, just down the road from my parents, uh, she gave it to the lawnmower man. Friends, we have an inheritance. It is real. It is tangible. It is something so much better than the excitement that you might feel or the prospect of inheriting $2 million worth of land. And more than that, it is guaranteed for us. It won't perish. It won't spoil. It won't fade. You know why? It's kept in heaven for you. This inheritance is something that's future. Often we think about the realities of the Christian life in this way, that there is a sense in which we do experience a blessing of the gospel now. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day I will be saved from the presence of sin. But here in Peter's mind, I think it's very future orientated. It's up there, kept for heaven, in heaven for us. But that it's kept in heaven doesn't mean it's not real. It's an inheritance. It's an inheritance that won't perish, spoil or fade. And even better than that, it's kept in heaven for us and God's power is at work to take us home there to heaven. Because if we want to see the power of God in our lives, we can look to our past and we can see how God has sustained us, how God has kept us. One song that we were singing on our holidays has this line and it really kind of struck me. It says, talking about God, you never failed and you won't stop now. Notice that it will be revealed It's not something that we currently experience in fullness. It will be revealed one day, even though we can't see it now. Just think about how frail you are as a Christian. Think about how sin so lingers in your life. The longer I'm a Christian, the more frail I feel, the more I'm confronted with my reality. But do you know what? You and I are going to leave here this afternoon as frail as we came in. But know this, know the words of the Apostle, that you, in your frailty, are shielded by God's power for the coming of his salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God will sustain us to bring us home. God will keep us going. His power that is at work, the power that brought this creation into being is this power that is worked to bring us into a new creation. Heaven has been kept for you And you have been kept for heaven. Writers, as I close, speak of the world that we exist in now as a narrow present. 
They say this because largely as a society, we don't, we don't have any idea of the past. What do we want students to do? What does our government want students to do? They want them to study what? Science, technology, engineering and maths. They do not want them to study history. And we are cynical of the future. We're ignorant of the past and we are cynical of the future. And so writers say that we live in this very narrow present. It's, it's anxious. It's stressful. But if you're a Christian, you don't live in a narrow present. You live in a generous and broad present because your past has been guaranteed by the death of the Lord Jesus. Your hope for the future is based on his resurrection in the past. The certainty of that fact, the historic reality of that fact is something that you can ground your life in for your future. And when you know your past and when you know your future, that changes what? Your present. Peter wants to give these Christians hope not just as a spiritual blankie so they can get through, but so they can live generous lives. Because hope dissolves cynicism now. Hope emboldens courage now. Hope empowers service now. Hope gives joyful praise and service of his people. Do you want to be a person of living hope? Well, then know of his great mercy Know of your inheritance that is real. And know that it is kept in heaven and God's power is taking you home there. Let me finish with these words of the Puritan Matthew Henry as he speaks about the way in which the reality of our future hope is to be put before us as a church. He says, Thus beats the pulse of the church. Thus breathes the gracious spirit that we should never be satisfied till we find such a spirit breathing in us and causing us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is the language of the church of the firstborn, that we should join with them, often putting ourselves in mind of the promise. What comes back from heaven in a promise should be sent back to heaven in a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.